Hey everyone, this is That Guy in Hutch, Jason Probst, and you're listening to That Podcast in Hutch. Today, I'm continuing the conversation about fentanyl and the, the need to develop some tools to address what, what is a growing concern in Kansas and across the country. And so I brought in Sharon Mandel. She works with the Forensic Medical of Kansas, uh, kind of on a contract with the Shawnee County Coroner's Office. She Her title is Special Deputy Coroner, and she does a lot of death scene investigations and autopsies for Forensic Medical. And... Uh, in talking with Sharon, she covers about 70 counties in the state of Kansas and about 25 in Missouri. And so I talked with her before and I asked her to kind of, you know, come in and visit with me about this and what she's seeing uh, for, from a, I guess, a forensic science perspective about what, what we're seeing in the state as far as uh, uh, overdose deaths and particularly fentanyl. So Sharon, thanks for being with me today. Well, thanks for the invitation. Well, before we get into... Uh, the talk about fentanyl. I want to. I just want to find out a little bit. How does someone get into a career as a, as a death doing a death investigator, death autopsy? Investigator. It's, yeah. Most people probably listen to that and say that sounds pretty dark. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's pretty interesting, actually. Uh, I am a death investigator. Medical legal death investigator is the actual title of my profession. I am not a forensic pathologist. I assist the forensic pathologists with investigations of death. And the uh, forensic pathologists are the actual uh, people who do the autopsies, but they rely heavily on the death investigators to do the scene investigation. If someone dies outside of a hospital, then state statute says that there needs to be a coroner's investigation. Most of the coroners in the state are uh, practicing physicians they're not going out to death scenes generally. Mm -hmm. They can, some of them do, most of them don't because they're so busy. Yeah. So they'll have uh, death investigators, i.e. me and mm -hmm. the staff I work with, to do that for them. And we're trained to uh, go to a scene, work with law enforcement, work with the uh, EMS staff, fire department, the people on scene, to gather information as to find, uh, to find out what happened, you know, what's going on, what type of case is it, and then to proceed from there, looking at the body, assessing anything that the body is telling you, because the body will tell you something if you know how to listen to mm -hmm. it. Uh, whether or not it looks like a natural death, an accidental death, a violent death, uh, however, you know, accidental suicide or homicide, we are expected to understand what type of case it is, to make decisions about what then to do take the, the body for an autopsy, forensic autopsy, or if it's benign circumstances to release the body to a funeral home um, or a crematorium. That's kind of what we do in a, in a, a nutshell, but how, how you get there, <laughs> that's the beauty of this profession. Honestly, you don't have to have one particular degree to do this. You have to have a good understanding of, of medical mm -hmm. um, terminology and, and you know not medicine per se like a doctor but the medical profession nurses make wonderful investigators ems people paramedics uh, make really good investigators i am a ba my background is in forensic anthropology so i started with bones okay and years ago <laughs> i was lucky enough to be able to work with dr mike finnegan who was the forensic anthropologist for the state at that time he's since retired but he was my mentor and kind of took me under his wing and taught me forensic anthropology before it was really a big field, uh -huh. you know. And that would that piqued my interest as a student, and I went from there and uh, went a little direction for a while, different direction. I went to uh, work in the local hospital here for 14 years, but that's where I learned the medical part. Okay. Because I didn't have the medical part in, in college, it's, you know, biology and chemistry. Mm -hmm. But it's different in the real world. So I, I did pick up the information and knowledge and interest of medicine working at the local hospital here in Topeka. And always wanted to get back to that original f study, you know, forensics. The field developed in that 20-year period. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I found myself ready to get back into it. 
So I pursued a, uh, a criminal justice degree at Washburn. And that, and was, that brings in the legal part. That brings the legal part, yeah. So I had, you know, the anthropological bones. I could understand what's going on with the human body from that standpoint. Had the medical training, i.e. experience, mm -hmm. at the hospital. And then uh, getting the criminal justice degree, I understood the, you know, the statutes and the legalities and law enforcement's view of things. And had some great classes at Washburn. So... It led me to an opportunity to work at the coroner's office. Dr. Mitchell at that time was the coroner, and this is 25 years ago. Okay. Um, he hired me to run the office because he wanted someone who could do the administrative work. I could do that standing on my head because mm -hmm. I did so much of it. Someone who understood anthropology and the forensic side and someone who knew the medical stuff. Here I am. That's you. <laughs> That's me. It was, it was just very, very, I was very lucky, very fortunate, right place at the right time. I didn't have a grand design when I was 25 years old that I will be doing this because the job I do now did not exist at that time. Yeah. It was done by police officers or professors, um, you know, anthropology professors or, you know, just agencies, not someone in the coroner's office. So I got very lucky. Oh, that's, very lucky. So, so the the anthropology part of this, mm -hmm. the forensic anthropology, when you're studying that, that's, am I understanding right that you're studying, uh, are, you, are you studying like old death scenes? Are you studying like old civilizations? It, <clears throat> well, the forensic side of it, it, was, it would not be old civilizations. Forensic would be current. Okay. Would, uh, a legal um, interest. Okay. Um, it has to be, I don't know if there's an actual date per se, but if any deceased individual bones, mm -hmm. typically, um, if they're deemed to be older than, you know, like 50 or 60 years years ago that they died, it's not really of a forensic interest okay. per se. I mean, it can be, obviously, depending on the type of case, but more than likely they're going to be more current um, either missing persons, homicides, okay. people who have died and, and just never been found, suicides, accidents, a lot of reasons. Um, but the ancient civilization stuff, that's anthropology, that's archaeology. I mean, mm -hmm. it's great stuff. I love it. But that's not uh, doesn't pertain really to the forensic world. So it's the forensic part current, is, is looking at it in the current context legal and standpoint. trying to understand yeah. what happened. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in, in, your, in your work... Uh, you, you probably do have a, a, a lot of, you've done this for, would you say, 25 years? I've worked in the coroner's office one way or the other for 25 years. My, <laughs> when I say this, my first homicide scene that I, that I was allowed to work with with Dr. Finnegan was in 1975. I tell people that who are considerably younger than me and they just sort of their eyes glaze over and say, <laughs> 1975? Yuck, you know, you're, you're really old. It's, well, I'm not old, that old. <laughs> sure. But it, it goes back a few years. Yeah. And I was just very lucky to be allowed to do that and, and uh, help out at such a young age, you know, being an undergraduate, to be able allowed to do that with Dr. Finnegan. You've probably seen a lot over the, over the years in your work here, and, oh, yeah. and probably some of it very unpleasant. Um, how yeah. how do you kind of compartmentalize or or because I've I've known you I mean should for I'll take a side route here um, your husband Rolf and I are we talk quite a bit right. he he works with KGS and uh, so I've had a lot of interaction with right. him and I've come to know you through that um, but you're you're a very happy person you, you wouldn't uh, but, but you work yeah, in a field you. that is kind of difficult yeah, how do you kind of manage that that's a, that's a good question and that's that's a, a question I get a lot and to me it's a pretty easy question to answer because I've been able to separate my personal existence and my personal life from my job my mm -hmm. profession what I do is it it's a job. It's a profession. I'm committed to it. I enjoy it. I don't enjoy the subject matter, per se. Mm -hmm. It's sad, and it is dark. But I enjoy what I do to help people, to help law enforcement, work with law enforcement to solve cases, 
to come to some sort of a conclusion, some sort of an answer to to a problem. Mm-hmm. That that to me is very appealing and it always has been. And how I deal with it personally is I tell myself the tragedy that I'm looking at, I have nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't cause it. I did not do it. Um, so it's not something that I can take any ownership in, in, in feeling that I had anything to do with it. But what I do have the responsibility is to help the people who, who are suffering, mm-hmm. the families. And help the, them understand what help happened. Them understand, yeah, yeah. Understand. And you because get to bring they your... don't know. Yeah, and and they want those answers, and you get to bring your skill set to that. Yeah, people just want to know the truth. Yeah, I really believe that. Even if the truth is not easy to take, um, they want to know the truth because if you know the truth about what happened and it's delivered in a sensitive, clear way, non-judgmental way, Mm -hmm. uh, I think it really does help. You know, the families and and the friends and neighbors of someone they've lost. Yeah. It's important. I think it's very important to do that. So I think I think so too. And I think it as you were talking, it made me think like you you are helping people in that. You're helping the you know you do have this tragedy, but you're helping people who are left to deal with this tragedy, yes. deal with it maybe better. We do a lot of follow up with families. Um, I've actually made some pretty good friends in, through this situation over the years. People that um, you know that keep calling. Mm-hmm. I had people for years would call an anniversary of, oh, their, really? of, a, of a death of a, of, a, of a family member just because they wanted to talk. Yeah. So I'll talk to them and I remember them. I, I, re- I do. I have a, a memory for this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I guess it's a cursor. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it is. But I, do, I remember so many of them. And they're kind of amazed that say, you actually remember? Yeah, I remember. How could I not remember? Yeah. You know, <laughs> because it's a big event for yeah. you too, right? It is. Yeah, it is. when yeah. you go into that. So you have these. You have this. The the forensic part. You have the or the forensic anthropology. Mm-hmm. You have the the medical part that you picked up from the, your time at the hospital, hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and the legal part. And we talked a little bit before that you're kind of you kind of use all of these to uh, help law enforcement because you understand the way bodies behave in certain situations, right. or you can be at a scene and understand from, from you, you'd said the body will, will tell you if you listen. Right. Um, I, I wonder if you, <laughs> if you talk about that a little bit more, what sort of things, and it may, you know, be too specific, but right. what sort of right. things does, I mean, is there an example of what you might see at a scene that kind of tells sure. you, Oh, this is what happened. Right. Yes. Yeah, there is. Um, the bo- bodies, we as human beings or as mammals, <laughs> uh, when we die, our body starts to go undergo changes that are very predictable mm-hmm. uh, based on time, environment, and the condition of the body at the time. Mm-hmm. And if you know what those stages are that the body changes, then you know how to interpret what's going on. Okay. There are um, there's something that that is is very telling. It's called a liver mortis, and there's rigor mortis. Yep. If you watch any CSI, which please <laughs> I do not do CSI, but if you watch any <laughs> of those shows, they'll you'll hear this term. So liver mortis and rigor mortis. You know the body's stiff or lit or limp or whatever. Well, those are really, I mean, that's, that part of the CSI stuff is real. Okay. It it will tell you within a range, how long the body, how long since death, Mm -hmm. um, whether or not the body has been moved, which is incredibly important when you're talking about the law enforcement scene. Yeah. I've, if that body's been moved within a period of time after death, the police need to know that mm-hmm. because the story they're getting may or may not be include that little detail. Yeah. <laughs> we know how to tell if the body's been moved. And that may be something that a law enforcement officer is not going to pick up no, on. No, they won't. But you can. Yeah. Yeah. They're not trained to really look at it. I mean, some of them can, of course. They've done it for so many years. But that's not a specific part of their training mm-hmm. where it's a big part of our training. Uh, the body will tell you whether or not it's been altered in mm-hmm. some way moved from the front to the back 
uh, moved from the side to the front because of blood pooling. Mm-hmm. Um, again, not to get into the gory details, but it after a period of time, the blood stops. You don't have blood pressure yeah. anymore. Yeah. So the blood goes to the lowest Gravity. Gravity takes it to yeah. where the lowest part is, and that's where it stays. And after a period of hours, that's where it will never move from. It will stay in that position. The it kind of capillaries start to break down, and the blood kind of flows into that area and just stops. And that's where it stays. Hmm. Into the point where you call it fixed liver, you're not ever going to move it. The blood will stay it there. It will stay there, yeah. So if you've been deceased for three or four hours, it's not going to be fixed. It's mm-hmm. still somewhat, somewhat liquid, fluid, you know. Okay. And someone decides to move you over onto your back, let's say, and you're on the, in that position for 12 to 15 hours, the liver will be on the back. And you can, I mean, it's, it's a little hard to explain, but you can honestly tell um, within a period of time, whether or not that that body has was had that individual died in that position and then was moved after postmortem, and it's important. I, that's really important to know how to do that. Plus, also you can just look at your body, look at a deceased person, and get an indication of of uh, illness during life. Mm-hmm. You know whether or not they had um, hypertension um, or. You know, edema a lot of swelling mm-hmm. whether or not they uh there's a thing that you look in the eyes and you can tell it whether or not they have high cholesterol really mm-hmm. yeah if they really have elevated cholesterol you'll see it in the iris what, what does that look like it's little specks of yellow oh really mm-hmm. okay yeah it's cholesterol huh so there are a lot of things so <laughs> yeah. when you go to a scene you're looking for some things like that to, right. s- to start the process of was this a natural death mm-hmm. was it Correct. and what conditions might have contributed to that so you're gathering a lot of information we at the gather scene. a lot of information and um that's why i say nurses make really good investigators because they're they're trained and and paramedics as well um they're trained to ask those questions when a patient comes into the emergency room what do you start doing? And you're getting your barrage with all these questions. And that's exactly what we do, except the person, the deceased person's not answering them. Someone is answering them for them if you're lucky enough to have a family member. Mm-hmm. But if not, then you have to know how to look at the environment and look at the scene and the body and the medications that may be, you know, in a, in a cabinet somewhere that you go and find. That's telling you all that information, and so you have to be able to digest all that and record it. And your medical people, um, medical first, I guess, uh, have that skill okay. because they just know how to do it. You know. And then all that information is then supplements the investigation right. if there's something that police need to look further Absolutely. into. Yeah, there's kind of, there, there's a rule. The whenever there's a deceased individual, the coroner statute's very clear. Uh, if a person dies unattended, there's a whole list of things, homicides, suicides, accidents, children under the age of 17, mm-hmm. uh, job deaths, whether or not you die while working or just or the job, you know, takes your life, depending on what, you know, we're sitting here, you're on the job, I'm on the job. If one of us keels over, it's still an on-the-job death. It mm-hmm. doesn't mean the job killed you. Yeah. It just means you died while working. And part of your job then as a investigator would be to determine that to determine that yeah yeah. so once you kind of get all that sorted out um the scene itself belongs to law enforcement Mm -hmm. and this is the legal part and some of our new investigators have trouble understanding that you us the investigators are welcomed into the scene by the police or the sheriff Mm -hmm. it's not our scene yeah it's our body by statute, we have that's our responsibility. Yeah. But the scene itself is the responsibility of law enforcement, and we cannot just barge into a scene. We have to be invited. Okay. Because we don't know what they're doing, what the stage of the investigation they're at. They may be collecting, you know, shell casings mm-hmm. or or whatever, and we walk through there, and we're not welcome yeah. <laughs> at that time. So that that's kind of the protocol. Law enforcement scene our body okay anything that's on the body in the body 
belongs, it's our responsibility. Okay. We may eventually turn it over, of course, to the police, but there's a very cordial relationship between the two. There should be. Yeah, it's not a competitive here. relationship. No, is not it? it's at a, all. It's a, it's a, a symbiotic relationship. Yes, it is. Yeah. You, 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 they're better for what we do, and we're better for what they do. You know, it really works both ways. Well, one of the things that I wanted to bring you on to talk about today is uh, kind of what we're seeing in terms of overdose deaths and and particularly fentanyl. And, you, you know, we've talked before that, that, that there's been some conversation in the legislature about fentanyl testing strips and trying to, to decriminalize those. Um, and there's a lot more attention being paid to fentanyl. And I, I had an earlier conversation with a former U.S. attorney who said when he started in 2018, he didn't even know much about fentanyl. And then by the time he left in 21, it was his primary concern. And he described fentanyl as a, as a game changer. Right. So one of the things I wanted to talk with you about is kind of from, from your work and after people have died from, from an overdose, Kind of what you're seeing, um, you know, the, the national and the state statistics, I think, indicate that this is a growing problem. And we're seeing, you know, far more people. Uh, it's growing every year. It seems right. more, more people dying from overdose deaths and more of those attributable to fentanyl. Um, but I wanted to talk to you to see what you're seeing uh, in your work. Well, <laughs> exactly what you just said. Um, the The... The issue with fentanyl has changed over the years. We, as speaking in, on behalf of the coroner's office, we actually started doing studies on fentanyl cases back in 2007. Oh, really? Yeah, six, seven. Started seeing these things kind of cropping up. Mm -hmm. And at that time, we didn't have a way to test quickly to see if it was, in fact, a fentanyl or not. We saw patches. They were the patches at those times, uh -huh. which were prescribed. Yeah. Um, and it piqued our interest scientifically. So why now are we starting to, first of all, see all these patches? And then now people starting to die. Are they dying from their disease, which is why they're prescribed? patches mm -hmm. can't they was originally for cancer patients and those are largely pain management yes. right oh yeah. yeah they were prescribed initially for very highly controlled for typically cancer patients or, or terminally ill people with a lot of pain mm -hmm. and we started seeing that developing so which is it you know <laughs> but it was enough to to pique our interest that we started to track it mm -hmm. every year a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And finally, in the early, like 2010, 2011, we started seeing people dying that were not prescribed fentanyl. Okay. It's not like putting an extra patch on or two, which could be an accidental situation because you're in so much pain, you know. Yeah. Um, we saw people starting to ingest it, mm -hmm. which is not advisable, <laughs> smoking it which is even definitely not advisable. You and I lethal. had a conversation about this before. You said that smoking fentanyl, or if you smoke something with fentanyl in it, it is it's almost a de facto dangerous. death sentence. It's right? very dangerous. It goes right into your lungs and immediately into your body. And you can't control the amount, you know, yeah. the dosage of what are you getting? Who would know? It's very, very dangerous to do. Uh, I mean, fentanyl is a lethal situation if not handled medically perfectly, you know, but under under good conditions. So we, we saw these numbers starting to go up in the the type of administration of the of, or ingesting the fentanyl start to change, become a little more creative, you know, with the smoking of it, the chewing of it, the uh, melting it down, basically cooking it and injecting it, IV administration. And it became something that originally was developed to help chronically ill or very, very ill people to relieve pain. It then became a, a problem for law enforcement, mm -hmm. a problem for the coroner's office uh, as it was being abused. And those numbers just kept climbing. And I just did a real quick little thing uh, 
uh, gathered some numbers just you know to try to illustrate that. Our our counties that we serve for forensic services, um, about, about 50 to 70, it depends on how many cases there are per year, but about at least 70 counties. Last, in 2020, we had uh, 150. Now, these numbers can be a little bit wobbly <laughs> because I, I this is not a scientific study. This is just me looking in our database to see how many overdoses we had, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, 150, 53 of them were fentanyl, for sure, mm-hmm. straight up fentanyl. 50 of them were methamphetamine. I threw that in there because it is a true problem as well. Uh, that number is understated because many of the people are dying from what we call polysubstance um, intoxication, mm-hmm. multiple drug intoxication. You have fentanyl, methamphetamine, oxycodone, amitriptyline. A lot of different drugs all in the same person okay you know so they're taking a lot of different medications on top of street drugs cocaine and whatnot so straight up fentanyl for sure 53 but in, the, but the that number was in 2020 okay in 2021 we had 84 that's a 58 percent increase in one year in just pure fentanyl pure deaths. fentanyl yeah that, again, that number is understated because of the polysubstance in you know in, ingestion patients. Yes. And your overall overdose deaths went up that in twenty one as well, right? Yes, one hundred and fifty to one ninety one. Okay, and then like you said, the poly what did you call it? Poly polysubstance. Polysubstance. Yeah, so this is a case drugs. where somebody may uh, may have other drugs that they're using, or they may have a drug that was cut with fentanyl, and that's mm-hmm. part of it too. Right. So you, when right. you look at the toxicology report, you're seeing several drugs. Several there. drugs, and, yeah. And you don't. Um, so fentanyl could be a contributor to that. It could be that meth is a contributor to that mm-hmm. as well. And yeah. you just you categorize that as the the poly substance, right? Okay, yeah. and it's very common. It's very common. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, and you, and so you said that was a, the fentanyl, just fentanyl, that was a 58%, 58% increase. increase. Yeah. And that's, that's that pretty, feels pretty dramatic. That's pretty dramatic. That's yeah. pretty dramatic. Now, in 2022, it's too early to tell at this point because there's a lag time in testing. Mm-hmm. With If you have an autopsy in January and, and you, there's an indication that there could be some some contributor due to drugs. We won't have the forensic lab testing for six to eight weeks. Okay. So you're looking at you know in March before you even know what was going on with someone in, in, in January. January. Okay. So, so we're too early on the numbers. It's too early really. in the year. Yeah. Now you had a couple of other stats that I thought were interesting. Uh, one of them that I particularly liked was the, or I like it's not the right word, but I was right. interested in is the. The breakdown between how many of these deaths were accidental mm-hmm. versus suicide right. or not determined. Yeah, the, the that's called manner of death, and people get cause and manner confused. Mm-hmm. Cause of death is going to be the uh, overdose, you know, okay. the intoxication, the lethal amount of the medications or drugs or whatever. The manner of death is going to be either accident, suicide, homicide, natural, or could not be determined. Okay. Those are all manner of death. Ninety percent of our drug overdoses are deemed accidental. Ninety percent, twenty-seven percent are suicides, which means they they were purposely someone did it. And that's seven percent. Seven percent. Okay. And three percent, we we don't know. We yeah. can't tell the mindset of the individual. There's not enough information. Uh, there's just not enough scene investigation. Uh, and our doctors are very careful. They're not going to check that box on a death certificate that says suicide or accident or homicide unless they're very certain that yeah. it is, you know, all the work's been done. So that's why you'll get a certain percentage, small percentage that we don't know. Yeah, because you just don't have the we information. Don't know. We don't have the information. Yeah. And they're not going to make something up. So on, it, on the 90%, 90% of overdose, overdose deaths are accidental. And that, that's an indication that um, the people who, who ended up 
they 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 had they weren't trying to overdose. Right. They they were using drugs and right. e- either it was um, adulterated or or in some cases fentanyl is included in that mm-hmm. and they didn't realize it and that's what we're starting to see a lot of. Or they that, don't understand the the interaction. Yes. Between fentanyl and another opiate, mm-hmm. and then maybe another type of opiate. And then throw a benzodiazepine in there, and then some cocaine. They don't, you know, lethal combinations of of drugs are are something that most people don't understand. Yeah, they just don't. And they and they're just they're there. They don't they don't understand that, and something goes wrong. And they don't that, purposely do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you had some other statistics too about ages, and I thought this was interesting. You said that the age ranges from in utero to right. seventy-five. Yeah, we uh, unfortunately there's a, a couple of deaths a year uh, to unborn, unborn babies uh, because of the mother's situation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's unfortunately also a few uh, cases a year of, of children, you know, mm-hmm. two month old, five month old, nine month old, two year old. Uh, who also have an exposure to these medications, uh, these drugs, mm-hmm. uh, either inadvertently because they're left somewhere where the kids can touch them or take them, uh, or because it's purposeful and mm-hmm. a part of an, of an adult in the room. We don't know, yeah. but they, you know, they've they die as a result of it. Terrible tragedy. Uh, but generally, the group we see are are in in their twenties to thirties. Okay. And overwhelmingly men. Yeah. Male. About sixty six percent of our particular cases are, are males, and that uh, age range typically we see that's twenties and thirties. Which is, I don't think, any surprise probably to most people. I mean, it's a fair number in the forties and fifties as well. But, but. But the bulk's in that 20 and 30. 30s, yeah. One of the things uh, I was going to ask about was uh, when you see some some of these drug overdoses or fentanyl, is there something different with fentanyl and its reaction in the body versus uh, something like cocaine or heroin from from a forensics? Or I guess what does fentanyl do to a body? Well, it suppresses the the um, central nervous system. Okay. Of which uh, opiates do that. Um, cocaine works differently, um, but these this type of drug will depress the central nervous system, and if you have too much of it, um, like a sudden intake, a bolus, you know, mm-hmm. of it, then it's just it's just going to knock it out. And, um, and people stop breathing. Yeah. At that oh, point, yes. Right? You stop breathing. Uh, if it's a slow type of reaction, then you 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 slowly you lose consciousness or the ability to to reason. You know, you you it affects your your central nervous system. Mm-hmm. So you're 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 not thinking properly. Yeah. You're not acting properly, um, and you may pass out, lose consciousness. You st- still might be alive at that time, but your body is slowly um, deteriorating. The central nervous system is dying. And it might take several hours for that ultimately to happen. And that's also another thing that the body tells us. We know how to look to see if the body, uh, if that that had been happening. Because you your, your respiration d- slows down. Okay. Normally you're like, breathing Depends if you're running or just sitting here, you know, 20 breaths a minute, mm-hmm. 25, 34, whatever your body does normally. But if you're suddenly down to four breaths a minute or two breaths a minute or the, you know, the, the agonal breathing mm-hmm. that you see right prior, you know, prior to death, uh, you're going to get a lot of congestion that builds up in your lungs because you're not circulating your blood's not circulating. You're 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 not oxygenating your your body, and you're going to get fluid back up in the lungs, and it's going to come out your mouth. Okay. And you can see that, and, and those, that's also an indication of overdose. No, that's not too gross. No, no, no. no. It's, fa- <laughs> it's, it's it's fascinating. I mean, I'll I'll be it. Um, you know, it's it it is 
I mean, it's it's the science. It's, it's the, the science, science. and yeah. that's and we. So I think sometimes we we are organic creatures, and we we're all going to go through something <laughs> we are. similar at some point. Yes, so we it's are. Kind of uh, one of the things that um, we're seeing here on on fentanyl is that um, it kind of goes back to your accident point that a lot of people or one of the arguments for for what we're talking about on things like testing strips and and narcan is on the back end where mm-hmm. narcan can i guess restore that service central nervous system function right yeah. um but there it seems there are a number of people who are getting fentanyl now but like early it sounds like maybe people were intentionally using fentanyl um or misusing a prescribed product in yeah in the, in the old days i guess the old days when the administration was through a patch it was visible to the patient. It was visible to us when mm-hmm. we saw the body, because that's that's the only way people had it. It wasn't it wasn't being um, manufactured the way it is now and put in in you know pills that that with the dirty thirties. I think they call them. I, I wanted you to talk about this a little bit because we had this conversation the other night about dirty thirties. What are dirty thirties? Well. <laughs> I don't know if I can describe them honestly as, as well as certainly a, a medical, a, a doctor or a pharmacist, of course. And, um, they are a, a, a fake, I guess, a fake pill that um, someone may think they're taking an oxy. Because those are commonly stamped yeah, with the number yeah. 30 on them. I mean, you know, if you get a prescription from a pharmacy, and you get a, a, a fake one, basically a, a one that's been manufactured through a, a lab, a, a meth lab or a, a fentanyl lab, you know, mm-hmm. illicit. They look the same. Yeah. They really, and there's some differences, but unless you really know the, what to look for, they look so similar that a, a lay person, a normal person is not going to know the difference. Yeah, I was going to say that the differences to the untrained eye, right. or certainly to a teenager, and we're seeing more of this happening yeah, with teenagers, the most, yeah. they're mean, not going to pick that up. Yeah. No, yeah. they're not. They're not. And so how? So that's part of your death scene investigation, right? If you go, right. if you go to a scene and you see someone has died from an overdose, mm-hmm. and then you're looking at the scene and you're seeing pills that are stamped with a 30 on them, right. then, then peak, you're probably doing toxicology. Inter- oh, well, yeah. yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And and I did want to mention, because this is something that we've started with, the One Pill Can Kill initiative, uh, which is a combination of, of like the, the Sheriff's Department, the DEA, the Police Department, the U.S. Attorney Representative, mm-hmm. um, uh, just people involved in law enforcement and in the legal field are working uh, cooperatively on this very problem. And we are proud that we are working with that that initiative and trying to help uh, with, you know, their efforts to get a handle on this situation. And that's trying to make sure people understand that that the pills of today are not like the pills of yesterday, (laughs) that that probably there's a very good likelihood that a pill you get today has fentanyl in it, it and it can and and it's quite probable that it could kill you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You better be very careful. I mean, we're not talking about <laughs> obtaining them legally. It's not a problem there. You know, they're, they're, it's the illegal obtaining of these things. Well, and that's one of the real things. I, I, the conversation I had earlier with with Mr. McAllister, the former U.S. Attorney, uh, he's, we talked about that about how the things have changed. The groundwork has changed. Yeah. Yes. There was a generation where. People were taking pills, but they were prescription pills, right. and they yeah. might have been gotten uh, through a prescription. There may have been some doctors overprescribing or mm-hmm. things like that, but that's where the pills came that's from. That's where they were coming and from. And so they were, even though they were still somewhat, um, they're street drugs because they weren't prescribed to this person or that person, they were clean drugs. Right. What we're seeing today. You knew what you were getting if you if you bought them from... Let's say someone that you know that's supplementing their income. Yeah. Maybe they get prescribed to them, and they don't use them all, so they sell some of them. Yeah, they're still manufactured by a legitimate pharmaceutical company, so they're not, you know, they're not that dangerous. And from the standpoint of you know what's in them, they're dangerous if you don't take them properly. Obviously, yeah. But anything, even you know. But now, what we're seeing is 
pills designed to look like mm-hmm. legitimate pills. But they're not. But they're not. Yeah. And so you don't know. And it's a poisoning of sorts. It is. Right. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I wish I, I knew more about how they were manufactured. That's the part. That's more like the DEA and those mm-hmm. guys understand that a lot more than I do. I'm curious about it myself to learn more about where where is this stuff being made? Mm-hmm. Uh, how is it being made? And how many versions of it are out there? Because that's a question that I have that I don't have an answer for. Because we're seeing it in in, 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 in in counterfeit Oxy and counterfeit Percocet. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what else, but... It, it's turning up in a lot of different yeah. forms. Just, um, you'll have to listen to the episode with, with Stephen McAllister because he, oh, like he talks a little bit about how it's manufactured. I would like to do that, definitely. And how that, even the trade of fentanyl has changed over mm. the years and what, what they've seen from a law enforcement perspective right. on this. Um, talking about the DEA, you know, they've, you talked a little bit about how you work with the DEA and I thought that was kind of interesting mm-hmm. if you could explain that. Right. Um, it, it's an initiative tied to this one pill can kill situation. Um, the um, the DEA is really committed to getting a handle on this situation, as are the local law enforcement mm-hmm. agencies. Um, there is a, 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 a group of counties in, in the state. There's that there categorized into various different, you know, like regions. Mm-hmm. That's the word I was looking for. Um, we work with the North Northeast Kansas region. Okay. Uh, the the lead agent and I have become, uh, you know, com- uh, we communicate with each other. And when our office, which is just one small office mm-hmm. in, in the state, Shawnee County Coroner's Office, when we go to a scene of death... And we certainly see these uh, pills that could be legit, could be not legit, or get an indication, you know, in the IV drug use, which is obvious Mm -hmm. uh, when we're on scene. Any potential overdose situation or abuse of narcotic situation, then we notify the the local agent here, the regional agent, I should say. pick up phone or shoot him an email saying, hey, we're seeing this last night or the day day before yesterday, we were at this scene and this is what we found. Just uh, provide him, you know, the law enforcement agency investigating their case number, lead, a- lead agent or detective, and then we turn it over to them. It's, it's a way, and they work together. Mm-hmm. And we're usually not involved until the autopsy results are totally completed, and then we provide that information to the agency as well to confirm or maybe maybe there were no drugs at all yeah but um, but at the outset you're kind of alerting them that yes this might we're be... alerting them we're trying to uh be the eyes and you know eyes and ears on the ground because they can't be everywhere yeah they don't go to these scenes they they have a much larger mission <laughs> but we can help them to at least point a direction because there may be two or three or four or five scenes that we've had in a couple of days, overdoses like in the same apartment complex and, and or the, the same neighborhood, things like that. And that tells law enforcement and the DEA that there's, there's something problem. happening yeah, there. There's a problem that somebody somebody is supplying mm-hmm. something there that, yeah. that they need to be concerned about. Possibly. And then you follow up with that when you have the full results right. and toxicology and everything. Mm-hmm. And yeah. say this is this is what's going on. It's just one small way to try to help help them with a massive massive problem that they have on their hands. Yeah. Well, aside from overdose, or I, I guess maybe this is a question I should ask. In and and maybe I didn't give you enough warning, and you don't no. have this. But <laughs> in the list of like c- cause of death, um, where does overdose rank right now in 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 your work? Hmm. Where, well, overwhelmingly, the most cases that we have, I have to say, are natural deaths. Okay. Um, heart disease, cancer, just natural deaths. Um, accidents would be coming in second, of which overdoses this would are probably yeah, very much so. That that goes along with falls, mm-hmm. uh, you know, car crashes, drownings, 
And some of these, interesting, I, I didn't even bring this up earlier, but some of these accidents that may be drownings are also the person is very, very intoxicated with medications oh. as well. So, so, yeah, so then you have a situation where the accident, the cause of death might be drowning, but the drowning was facilitated by intoxication. Were, yes. Yeah. Okay. So you get those as well. That's why the, looking at the numbers, it's, it, you know, this is not a scientific study, but it's a pretty good indication of what's going on. So accidents are, would be second, followed by suicides, followed by homicides. So, homicides are the, the fewest, thank God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, accidents is, would be second. So overdose, let me just say that a week does not go by in this job where we don't have at least four or five overdoses. Really? Every week? Every week. Or so, suspected overdoses. Yeah. Yeah. So that's quite a few that you're that you're that yeah. you're seeing. Yeah. Coming coming in. Yeah. Um well bef before I I let you go, I guess well one, I'll kinda open the floor if there's anything else you wanna talk about on this. <laughs> um it, whether it's to deal with fentanyl or whether it's to deal with with your work in general. Um but I always have a question I ask, which is just kind of a general what what is one thing that you wish some that people knew or understood? Um, in this case, we could say about overdose or about your work in general. Oh, boy. It's always an on-the-spot kind oh, of question. thanks a lot for that question. Um, mm, overdoses. I guess the, the effect that it has on those that are left behind, the families that are, that are affected, and friends, that are affected by this, the decision that an individual makes, either purposefully or more than likely not purposefully, an accidental situation they find themselves, that is, is, that's profound because I look at the number 200. That's 200 people that have died from an overdose. Mm -hmm. How magnify that by all the families and the friends and the, the teachers, the co-workers, all the people in that person's life. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Yeah. That I mean, that if the one thing really bothers me at night or it would get me down, <laughs> it's that. Yeah. It's the overwhelming this effect that it has on all the people that, that are that knew and loved that person. And because they're left to deal with that loss. They and have that, to deal with emptiness. That. Yep. And in some of these cases from someone that they had no indication the day before mm -hmm. that this was going to be a problem. Just immediate. Yeah. It's not like you can prepare for a loved one's, you know, death because, the, you know, they're ill or they're in hospice or you're ready for it. This is just out of the blue. It's just boom, you know. It's just a person may have had, had substance abuse problems for years and years uh, that may be one-time thing. Yeah. You know, it could be an experiment or something at a party or somebody getting something that they don't even know what they're getting and they die. That's my God, it's just horrible. Well, and to me, that's the real danger with fentanyl, right? Yeah. Is that they're teenagers who are exper experimenting at a party right. and they don't know what they're they getting. Are, they don't know what they're getting. Yeah. Or, or anybody, you know, adults that, well, people that are in addiction who, who think they're doing one drug. Uh, and then and they're getting something else yeah. and it just it completely well like like we said earlier it's a, it's a form of poisoning it's mm -hmm. uh, regardless of what we wish people might do in terms of drug use or, yeah. or addiction the fact of the matter is is if they if they're using one drug and they're getting something else that feels quite a bit different to me very yeah, yeah. I, I do a lot of work with families uh after the fact yeah because I, would, I think we talked about this earlier earlier in our in this podcast about uh, how people just want to know the truth. Mm -hmm. Well, they they'll call our office and they want to know the results, mm -hmm. and we we will be honest with them and tell them and provide them the autopsy report. By law, they're entitled to it yeah. unless it's. And investigate a, yeah. a homicide or something, then we do not share that information. We're not allowed to. But if it's an accident 
and someone wants that report and wants all the detail, then they are legally allowed to have it in the state. And we will give it to them and we will sit and re- re- review it with them. I've done that on many occasions with families, talk them through it, explain what the big words mean. Um, and that's terrible. I mean, it really is sad to to see the effect that it has, you know, on the families. Yeah. And it's, so it could have been avoided, you know. It, uh, yeah, that's the that's the one downer in my job, I, I guess. <laughs> I, I can see that because but, you're you're there walking them through, and they want to know the truth, and yeah. then the truth is unpleasant. Oh, and, my, yes. And in some ways, inexplicable, right? I mean, yeah. there's still the questions of why, why? Did this happened. You know. No, I can't answer that. Yeah, yeah. you can you can just explain how, mm-hmm. but the why is something why that's harder. Why I can't? I, mean, I won't even try because you're digging yourself in a big hole if you start doing that. Yeah, I've learned the hard way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's that's one of the things. I think so many people, you know, it's good. It's sad that this has become such a tragedy in our country, particularly with fentanyl. Um, it's good maybe in a way that the awareness is being raised it seems like people are more aware of this danger now i i certainly there's a lot of of information in the news i mean i just well it was wasn't it monday national fentanyl awareness day oh that's right yeah Yeah. i i that's a new that's a new thing yeah first that we have to have yeah yeah and they uh you know they talk about what it is is it legal well, if it's prescribed, it certainly is legal. It's a very helpful drug if you if you it's prescribed properly, and the role of naloxone in it. And I'm just kind of looking. I, I downloaded some of this information because I thought, wow, that's great. It's about time, yeah. you know. And things like this are going to just be more helpful for the public and and raise awareness for a really really serious problem. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you taking time to yeah. do research and go through <laughs> numbers you. and come on and visit with me today. This yeah. has been a very good conversation. I, I, I appreciate you asking me. Yeah. No, it was great. Well, thank you, Sharon. Thank you, too. I'd like to thank a few of the people who have helped make that podcast and Hutch possible. My son, Mitchell Probst, wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast in Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast in Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. A Salt City Sound production.